Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March 22nd, 2018, and this is episode 2187 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Thursday, that's listener call-in show, that's where you pick up your phone and you dial the number 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK, or you can go to the survivalpodcast.com, take a look at the contact page and use the speak pipe, and the speak pipe will let you send us a message, audio message, through the magic of the interwebs, either way will work. Leave me your question or make your point, do what these callers by and large have done that you'll hear today. Bottom line, up front, make your point or ask your question. You can do that in one sentence. I promise you I'm a professional. I do this for a living. Then give me your details. Every time I get this kind of a call, and I had one today, the guy called back and fixed it. Every time I get a call that goes, Jack, uh, I'm from so-and-so and blah, blah, and yeah, 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 mm, uh, uh, hold on, I'll call back. Every time that happens to a person, I'm going to tell you right now, um, they didn't make their point or ask their question up front. And every time a person makes their point up front or asks their question up front, uh, the call goes well, and 90% of the time or better it ends up on the air. So I'm trying to help you help me help you. All right? So anyway, that's how to do that. Make sure you call from a quiet area. That's really important, too. Don't call uh, when you're being strafed by F-16 jets, which seems to happen to me every morning here when I take my walks and my solitude is broken, or from the back of a motorcycle or from a large truck with the windows open or something like that. Uh, and uh, make sure you got a couple of bars on your cell phone if you're calling in from a cell phone. What are we going to talk about today? What do we have calls on? We have uh, a question on why I prefer cans over bottles for beverages, specifically the adult beverage that has bubbles in it. Uh, planting buckwheat in your systems, keeping ducks brooders dry, which is actually really easy to do, moving to a new state without support or possibly finding support if you want to walk to freedom, making choices on cover crops for pasture improvement, uh, choosing a trolling motor for a small boat, concealed carry and Leo encounters in duty to inform and odd comments from Leos when you inform them thusly that you are carrying as required in some states. Is it safe to feed crepe myrtle seeds to chickens getting ready to move to the country from the city? If I say the city, there's only two places that are the city. The people that live there refer to it as the city. One's Philly, the other one's New York. You'll hear which one it is when we get there. Uh, thoughts on how much you should have before seriously investing your money. So how much money do you have before you worry about, like, what do I invest in, what sector, and things like that. And some things that may not be a fully understood when I and John Pugliano have talked about this subject in the past. All of that and more in just a bit. Before we get to those questions, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, Safe Castle Royal the original survival podcast sponsor. Now, why would somebody be called the original survival podcast sponsor? Because they were the first. When there was nobody, when there was barely any listeners, I'm talking like a couple hundred people were listening to this show in the beginning. First few months, I heard from this guy named Vic Rontala over at Safe Castle and said, hey, we want to sponsor your podcast. And I said, dude, I appreciate that. I'm not ready to take sponsors yet. And he said, well, what do you mean? I said, I don't have enough people. I don't think it would be right of me to take your money. 
And he's like, you know, we can tell where this is going, and we want to be part of it. And I said, you know what? Let me build this up a bit. Let me look at how I actually want to run a sponsorship program, and as soon as I'm ready, I'll let you know. A few months later, we had a couple thousand listeners. I was ready to move ahead with the sponsorship program. Talked to Vicky. said, we are absolutely happy to sponsor you. And they have just about everything you can think of for your prepping needs. And, guys, that story I just told you, that happened almost nine years ago. Nine years of support from a sponsor in the world of podcasting. It says something about loyalty from our sponsors and how much they love serving you, the audience. If you need something for your prepping, check out, check out SafeCast. Remember, they have a discount buyer's program. Remember, you can get that for free for life if you're an MSB member. Next up, HarvestEating.com. You know, I heard from Chef Keith. I was probably about two years into doing this show. He said, hey, I'd love to come on and do a show with you. He's been on the show many times. We've done just plain old cooking shows. We've done Thanksgiving specials together with how to make the great Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, and he became a member of our expert council. He became a sponsor. He became a great friend of the show and the community. And you can learn more about him and all of the things he does at HarvestEating.com. And what I love about Keith is we have very similar philosophies with cooking. In spite of the fact that, you know, I am not a classically trained chef. I have never been a professional cook or chef in a restaurant business. And, you know, Chef Keith at one time was the executive chef at, you know, the kind of place that you spend $500 a plate or more uh, at an exclusive restaurant in Aspen, that that type of a, a level. Yet we both understand that cooking is about technique over recipe and that cooking is a life skill. You can learn a lot of great stuff from Keith and get all of his products, his cooking courses, his seasonings and things like that, his uh, podcast, his YouTube channel, all his great stuff available at HarvestEating.com. Before we get to your calls, let me remind you real quick, the uh, best way you can support us is by joining the Member Support Brigade. If you join the Member Support Brigade, or MSB for short, you will be helping make sure that this program is always available to you. But you know how I am. I don't like to be like PBS broadcasting. If you send me a thousand dollar play, I'll I'll send you this uh, this shopping bag that's worth a dollar. I, I I don't do things like that. This is not a charity. This is a business. I believe in value for value exchange. I try to provide you guys a great deal of value every day on the air, and then I ask you to support us if you find it you know worth doing that through the MSB. And then I try to get your money back. I go out and negotiate discounts for you. I set up a ton of discounts for you over seventy companies. Use a few of those a year, get your money back, and support the show. Win, win, win. I win because I get to do what I love to do. You win because you get to support the program that brings you education and entertainment on a daily basis. And the providers win because they get incremental business, business they would not otherwise have for a fixed ROI. So that's the way we put together MSB. I'd love to have you be a part of it. Just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. And with that, let's go ahead and get into your calls Uh, this first one is a pretty short call, and I, I think I know what he's talking about. Let's go ahead and hear it. Hey, Jack, why are cans better than bottles? Thanks. Okay, like I said, I, I think I know why he's asking this question. I think recently on the air or Facebook or somewhere, I made a comment to the effect that more of our, um, our microbrewers should be packaging their beer in cans than bottles. And I've got a few people have asked kind of questions like this, and that's why I assume this is what he's asking. There's quite a few reasons that I feel this way. Number one, I did not always feel this way. As a young man, uh, especially I'm going back to like being a single young man, uh, hanging out in bars and things like that, where you always drank your beer out of the container it came in, or if you were out camping, you popped a top and you drank that beer out of whatever it came in. 
Uh, I always preferred bottles. Because I've always said that beer packaged in aluminum cans doesn't taste right. It tastes different. Well, it doesn't. The beer itself has no difference in taste. I can I can pour, you know, five beers or six beers, let's say three and three, and mix them up all the same variety out of cans and bottles into glasses. And if you drink it, you're not gonna you're not gonna do better than fifty percent on your guessing uh, over time in the law of averages. There's not a significant difference in the taste. Where there is a difference in the taste is when your lips are touching the can. Uh, when you have that, because the aluminum does have kind of a, a reaction with the human mouth that causes a flavor that I don't like. Uh, since I've grown up to a big boy and started putting my beer in a glass, and the right kind of glass for the right beer, uh, for instance, if I am drinking an ale, I do not put it in a snifter-shaped glass like I do for a, a Belgian ale. If I'm drinking just like a U, an American red ale or something like that, I put it in a pint glass. And if I'm drinking something like a Chimay or Midas Touch or something like that that you know calls for it, I'm going to use more of a, a, a snifter-shaped glass that allows that bigger lip and the breathing and the way that that beer needs to be drank. So since I don't have the the illusion now that aluminum tastes bad because uh, I'm not drinking out of the aluminum itself, I have no flavor qualms there. So that leaves me with convenience of packaging and disposal. So if you purchase a 12-pack of adult beverages and they are bottles, you have a really heavy, you know, either recycling container uh, or you have a really heavy garbage bag to deal with, and they can break, and then that gets people cut, and if it falls on the floor, the dogs can get hurt, all of that good stuff. Where you know a dozen aluminum cans weighs almost nothing. They're easy to recycle. They actually are fully recyclable, uh, and they're just more convenient. If we crush them up, they take up very little space. Uh, where if we break bottles up, we make something that's a deadly weapon. Instead, we just have a crushed can. I just don't see the the point of having bulky and heavy waste. I know some people worry about health issues with aluminum. I think that we can worry too much. And I think worrying about aluminum is probably worse than aluminum ever could be. The stress from the worry. Uh, there are certain things that I don't think make sense to do with aluminum when it comes to consumption. One is to cook, especially slowly, large amounts of acidic things in aluminum. That can leach aluminum off of a pan. Let's say if you're doing like a slow-cooked spaghetti sauce or something like that, I'd not recommend aluminum for your cookware. Otherwise, I just don't worry about aluminum. So that's why I feel that way. It's recyclable fully where the cheap glass really is not so much. Uh, now, back in the day, like when I was you know, a teenager and we were drinking before we were supposed to, a little place called Pottsville, Pennsylvania. Uh, this beer that I keep hoping will come to Texas called Yingling, the oldest brewery in America, oldest continuously operating brewery in America. Uh, they made malt and, uh, and sold malt and made ice cream and sold malted ice cream, but they sold a lot of malt. Like you go down to Yingling and get a big pile of malt in a powder form, malt, right? So you know what they were doing. That's how they survive prohibition. That's why they're the oldest continuously operating brewery in America, because they didn't go out of business. They didn't make a lot of ice cream after the uh, the repeal <laughs> of prohibition either. But in the 80s, when you went to the liquor store, you could get, a, actually the beer store, you had to go to a different store for liquor. When you go to the beer store, they had these big, heavy-duty cardboard waxed boxes that opened up with two like doors on the on the top. And you could buy them in 12 ounces or 16 ounce bottles. And they were true returnable bottles. 
and the case probably would last 100 cycles before you had to throw the case away, the, the, the cardboard case. And if, if, if we had uh, microbrewers that were operating locally that were running that type of a recyclable glass product, I would think that's a fine model. But since that's not how beer bottles work anymore, and by the way, you got two bucks off your next case if you brought the old case back. <laughs> and back then, I think a case of Yingling Pounders, as we call the 16 ounces, a case of Yingling Pounders was like uh, $11.50. So if you had a return case, it was like $9.50 for a case of Pounders. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to see those days come back, and I'd love to see Yingling come to Texas. And I, I think that from another standpoint, just a business operational standpoint of a microbrewery and shipping, Uh, you can ship more in less space, and it weighs less, so it costs less to ship. Because there's there's no way to that glass there. You have less broken product. I don't see why anybody's using bottles anymore other than to serve the market of the bar room and the picnic where people drink out of the bottle. Because it is a much better experience drinking out of a bottle than drinking out of cans if you know how to drink out of a bottle. And i got to tell you that I would say more than 50% of adults – in America, do not know how to drink a beverage out of a bottle. If you put your lips over the entire mouth of that bottle like a baby sucking on a nipple, and you drink that way, you do not know how to drink out of a freaking bottle. And that's why when you take that first swig out of a bottle of beer and you bring it, you always foams up and comes over and makes a mess. Because you don't know what you're doing. The way you drink out of a bottle properly is you treat it like a little bitty glass, and you drink off of one side of that bottle. I hate, as a grown man of 45 years old, to have to explain that to people, but I've seen enough people, I've seen enough people that don't know how to drink out of a bottle that you got to tell them. Anyway, let's take another one. Not exactly a prepper topic, but it is a business topic. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Matt from Missouri. Uh, I called with a little Facebook rant, and I wanted to say you're exactly right. These people are my potential customers. doesn't matter if I know them or not. And I just wanted to say thank you because every now and then I become a pussy. And I really want to wholeheartedly, 100%, I am not being facetious in any manner at all. I mean this from the bottom of my heart. Sometimes uh, kicking the ass from a stranger saying quit being a pussy is what I need. Thank you very much. I really appreciate your input, and I've been listening to your show since uh, 2012, and I've learned a lot from you. Thank you very much. Enjoy your day. You know, um, I remember that call, and he was upset about having to use Facebook to start a new business, and he was mad that random people he didn't know were showing up at his page <laughs> and making comments. And I was like, that's the whole point. That's called marketing. Um, but you know, I'll tell you what it really was. I don't like this thing. It's new, and it requires me to do something differently than what I'm used to, so I'll talk bad about it to make an excuse for not having it. This is the same kind of thing that happens when people write me and go, I'm not going to have a garden. I, well, I didn't say you had to, you know, but uh, because when, some, when, when the apocalypse comes, people are going to steal my tomatoes. Okay, dude, just say you don't want a garden. Right? Just be honest about it, and if we're honest about why we don't want to do something, Often we'll figure out, hey, it's okay not to do it, or we're really making a mistake not doing it. Now, same dude, had two calls in a row. Second one was a question on Buckwheat. There's no way when a man makes a call like this, and I'm not going to take his question call right after it. So even though it's two in a row, same dude, different question. Hey, Jack, my question is, how close can you plant Buckwheat to other things? 
specifically in this case, a little here's the background. Trees and shrubs, arbovitas, yews, hollies, uh, black locusts, Osage orange, things like that. Uh, I'm building a or growing a perimeter wall around my property. The soil there is garbage. It has not been worked in the way that I've worked the market garden area of my property. How close to those things can I plant the buckwheat so that it, I can chop it and drop it, maybe push it over a little bit uh, more towards those areas and let it do its thing without choking out what I've already planted there? Thanks very much. Have a good day. Well, it's it, buckwheat's not going to have any effect whatsoever uh, detrimentally on any woody perennials that are able to get up above the buckwheat itself. So the answer is right up against it. I include buckwheat in the seeding that I do on my uh, food forest berms uh, in my seed mixes, uh, specifically not the mix that I'm putting out right now, but the seed mix that I'll put out uh, about two months from now is like the next phase of seed going in, which will include things like uh, cow pea, uh, black-eyed pea, and, and some other things and some select vegetables that will be planted into those berms. I do not use a lot of it. I do not use heavy amounts of buckwheat, except when I do buckwheat and cowpea as an actual cover crop. And I, I think that we'll have a question later, so I'll save some of this. But people, to me, often confuse cover cropping with pasture establishment or pasture improvement. So with cover cropping, we have a bare area we want to cover it fast. Or we have an area that we're going to leave bare, let's say, over the winter, and we want to cover it over the winter until we then till it in or cut it down and chop and drop or whatever in the spring when we plant back into that bed or into that farm, you know, farmed area or what have you. And that's very different than trying to establish pasture. It sounds like you're probably trying to do a little bit of both here. Um, the problem with buckwheat as a cover crop is how effective it is. And what it will do is it will choke everything out. And it doesn't really choke everything out. That's a little bit of a misnomer. What it really does is shade everything out. If, if you have soil that's loosened up enough for that buckwheat to get good soil content, contact, and you sow buckwheat at like a, you know, the kind of, the way that you would sow it if you were growing it as a crop at a heavy, heavy density, it will grow and it will grow fast. It will often, in, in the right conditions, have flowers on it in six weeks from sowing. That's a month and a half to having flowers on it. And within another two weeks, it'll start to put grain on. So what you're talking about is a grain crop that can produce in 8 to 10 weeks a crop. That's one of the reasons people use it in agriculture as a cover crop because you do get a yield at the end of it. You also get a green manure that you can till in, and it's a short-duration rotation into your next main, main, main frame crop, which might be a long crop like a, 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 a wheat that you grow through the winter and harvest in the spring, that type of thing. So when we're using it on our homesteads, we have to decide, are we covering an area temporarily and building up a bunch of material, or are we using it as just another plant in the ecosystem? And if we're, if we're doing that to where we're spreading it in very, you know, not really small amounts, but low-density amounts. So if there's a little clump of buckwheat right here, and there's a bunch of other stuff around it, it won't hurt anything. It doesn't crawl like, and that's why I say it's not really choking out. Uh, if you plant a single buckwheat seed, it grows pretty much a, a single, maybe two or three frond plant that will grow straight up. And actually, it will fall over a lot without having a lot of its buddies to kind of help it. 
Um, if you sow it in small amounts throughout an area, then it kind of does the same thing. It, it, it's, it's not even to the level of a type of like a grass that will form a clump and begin to expand. It, it's it got, Again, it's got a short life cycle. So you can plant it anywhere you want. Just know that if you do plant it, this is the problem with when you cover crop some area that you don't really want to cover crop with an annual. It is going to be very, very dense. Red cowpea and buckwheat mixed together are great for this. And it will definitely give you a large amount of organic matter. And if you do it with, with uh, cowpea, it'll, it'll give you some nitrogen fixation and a lot of organic matter as well. And if you want to go through it, you've got agricultural crops you can harvest in the form of cowpea and buckwheat. But when it dies, there's literally going to be nothing underneath it. And it's not anything that's allopathic. It's not that the plants produce something that competes. What they do is they take away light. It's the same as if you laid down a piece of cardboard. So if you do that, you have to have a plan for what goes in next. And it has to go in before you harvest it, before you chop and drop it. So what you would do is, while it's still up, you go through and you seed it with your next succession. And you can even leave that down there a little while, give it some irrigation or wait for a rain, And when you start to see your little seeds sprouting underneath it, uh, and I don't mean coming up. If you wait till they come up, they're going to get all spindly. But right as they start to sprout, or before they even start to sprout, we chop it and drop it. Then that next crop will come up through that buckwheat acting as a harrowing or covering of that next crop. And this is the primary way I like to use buckwheat. I use it in the establishment, if I'm going to do dense uh, packing of buckwheat, the establishment of long-term perennials. So we'll put the perennials down, and then we drop it on top of it. But it really shouldn't affect what you're doing at all. You just need to be aware of all these things so you make the right decisions with this individual design tool uh, in, in a for, you know an annual planting of a quick maturing, a quick dying plant. And that's the other thing. Since it goes quick, you know, eight to ten weeks... If your weather's in the, starting to change in a pattern, it might just die on you, and then there's nothing there. Same thing can happen with, like, white kaios oat. It's an annual. You know, it chokes everything out, you know, and, and oats more choke than shade. And then when it dies back, if you're not timing your succession and planting, you end up with bare dirt, which is what you're trying to avoid in the first place. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is CJ from Pennsylvania. I wonder if you had any ideas on keeping a duck brood or dry. Um, currently raising about 10 chickens and uh, four ducklings, uh, Kathy Campbell's great little birds, but very messy. Um, just having trouble keeping the brood or dry. Um, have pine shavings in the bottom. Have just one of those normal, you know, chicken waters from Tractor Supply. But uh, the little ducks, man, they just, they just splash everywhere and just make everything such a mess and so wet and... You know, it's a little cold. I want to keep the birds dry and warm. Um, so wondering if you have any ideas. Uh, thanks for the show, man. See ya. Baby ducks are messy, and they do skank up a brooder really, really quick. And the other problem with that is they can die really fast on you. Now, if you don't have a heavily uh, dense-packed brooder and you have good brooder lights away from the wet area, And if they make it through the first day or two like that, they pretty much snap to, hey, once I'm soaking wet, I need to get dry and I need to preen. And, and they, they will probably not kill themselves. But I've seen young ducks get really wet and go down in a matter of minutes before they get to the point where they understand how to deal with it. 
And if they have a mother with them when they're being, they, I've seen baby ducks that young go swim and dive, and they're fine with that mother looking after them. But in a brooder, it's a different situation. Uh, they can get pushed up against an area. They look like they're being warmed by another animal. That animal's cold too. Uh, they begin to have slower respiration. They basically get compressed by the other birds and die. So we, we really want to keep them dry. So my first rule is the whole give them food and water at all times. No. No. Give them water. Watch them consume the water. Take the water away, at least for the first week. Uh, don't let them have water overnight. Okay? Because not even with what I'm about to tell you to do, they can still get themselves pretty wet. All right, so don't let them have water overnight. Generally, I would give them water in the at, late afternoon. I would watch them drink it, and they drain it pretty much. And uh, then I just did not give them water overnight because I wasn't going to be there to supervise them. I'm sawing logs. And then in the morning, I'd fill their waters up. They all run out and drink it. Now, I was brooding 25, 50 ducks in a brooder, so that's a different situation than you have. Now, what I came up with, though, and I have a video from the Duck Chronicles that shows the basic way to do this, is that all you need to do is use some one-quarter-inch hardware cloth and build some sort of a frame or a box. And then underneath, and you need to build it big enough, you have some sort of a reservoir that sits underneath it to catch the water that they're going to spill. You cannot prevent them from spilling water. And then you set that reservoir on the bottom of your brooder, and you set this box over it. And you put your straw or your aspen or whatever all around it like you normally do from the bed in and set your water on top of the hardware cloth. When they splash around and make a mess, now the water that comes out of the water will go through the hardware cloth and into the reservoir. You do have to clean this out a couple times a day, especially if you have a lot of ducks. It is pretty nasty looking uh, in, in a, a short period of time, but the brooder stays dry. And, and I don't care exactly how you do it, but this is the way to do it. Now, what I did, I made my frames out of some cheap plywood, and I put this hardware cloth over it, and I got the small disposable uh, paint roller trays from, like, Lowe's and Home Depot, the ones for, like, when you're doing cabinets with the cabinet roller, those smaller ones, and I made it so that they fit right around there. I didn't have any problems with the ducks. I would say probably a better design than what I did is to make more of a, Take maybe some one-by and make more of an on-edge box so that it can set down on the bottom of the brooder and there's still room for the, the, uh, the collection container to be underneath it rather than having kind of a gap between it. Because I also used this when we brooded turkeys, and I did have one turkey that managed to shove himself underneath it and kill himself. And I think this turkey just wanted to die because I pulled him out of there twice And I kept trying to build up stuff so he couldn't get under there, and he managed to shove himself under there a third time and do himself in. So I would say that we do need to be careful whatever we're using to suspend that hardware cloth and the feeder with it above the, the reservoir for the discharged fluid, that there is not a real likelihood that a, a, a duck or a chicken or whatever else is in that brooder can shove itself up under there because it's amazing what these... Uh, little birds will do to kill themselves. It's almost like they want to sometimes. But if you take a look at the video, and then you don't have to do it the way I did it. I mean, this is the, the, the only thing that needs to be done is we just need to have some way of letting water fall through from the top to the bottom. I've tried it with drilling holes in things and stuff like that. 
it doesn't work. It needs to be really, really porous. And quarter-inch hardware cloth is small enough. The birds don't get stuck in it. Their feet don't go through it, what have you. Uh, and it's porous enough that 100% of the water that comes out ends up in the reservoir. And if you'll do that, your brooders will be dry and they will stink a lot less. Uh, anyway, let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Nick calling from the People's Republic of Western New York. My question is, how do you pick up and move to a new area or state that has greater freedom without having any support there? A little bit of background. I'm 26 years old. I'm in New York, obviously. I'm looking to move to New Hampshire. Uh, I have no job, place to live, family or friends, or anything there to help me get on my feet. Uh, I've been on your Walking to Freedom forum and the Free State Projects forum to get some ideas. Uh, there's not much activity going on there recently. It's a big leap for someone to make. Uh, the only time I've ever made a big move across state lines was when I joined the military and they moved me, so I had a paycheck, housing, support, all that stuff. Uh, just wanted to get some of your thoughts on the matter. Thanks for the show and introducing me to a variety of new topics. Keep up the great work. Thanks. Bye. Well, you know, I would I would mention the uh, Walking to Freedom Forum. With no one captaining that ship, it hasn't really done that great. You can still find people there and, and learn about other states. That's By the way, that's something that's like an open thing. If anybody wants to become like the chief admin of that site and run it, and run it honestly for a profit any way you can think of, I will turn the keys over to anybody dedicated to it. And as long as it gets run right for long enough, I'll let you keep running it, and eventually I'll give it to you. Because I just... I didn't set up walkingthefreedom.com for my own benefit. I did it to help other people, but realize to make an Internet property worth the effort it takes to maintain it, build it, and grow it, it has to produce some sort of income. So, you know, that's that's available to anybody that wants to try to take that and, and go forward with it. Now, the Free State Projects Forum, I don't know anything about it, but I would tell you that Unlike just an Internet forum, the Free State Project is made up of real people. And if you're seriously considering uh, New Hampshire, that you need to get in touch with them. And they have ambassadors to every region of New Hampshire that can help you with the type of thing that you're looking for. Instead of trying to do it, you know, so you need people, so don't try to do it without people and only use online personas of people to get things done. Get in touch with people like Roger Paxton up there, uh, or Carla, Carla Greckel, et cetera, and they will clue you in on the people that are working their ass off, honestly, to accomplish their goal of bringing people to New Hampshire. If you're willing to consider Tennessee, uh, any day that you get on the Zello group, there's probably a whole bunch of people from Middle Tennessee there. Uh, that can, and, and I know people have been actively moving to Tennessee in this community, and it's probably ground zero for the, if it's not the largest number concentration of TSP people, it is the largest concentration of people that have moved to a place to be with other TSP people. That I have no doubt about. I actually think we have more people here in North Central Texas. That this is where the biggest piece of my audience is, is people that are around here. But they're not in touch with each other so much as the people in Tennessee tend to be. I think Zello in general is a tremendous community. And you might want to get on the Zello channel and introduce yourself and say, You're considering going somewhere. Be prepared for the Tennessee people to act like, uh, you know, the church people that come to your door if you invite them in and say, please tell me more about your church. They're going to, they are going to indoctrinate you, okay? And that's a good thing because you're looking for support. But 
I, I think you might find that you can find people in any state on Zello. Last night we did kind of a local sound off, and there were people from all over the country. Uh, there was one guy there that's a service member who was in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. There was a guy named Mick that was in Australia. So, I mean, obviously it's a geographically independent group of people. And, you know, just having one or two people in an area that could say, hey, you know, this is kind of where to check out can be very helpful. The next thing I would say, though, is I think what you really need to be doing is figuring out what you want and then finding places that seem to fit that mold and then marry that to the opportunity to, to have the profession or work that you want to do and where those are and refine that down to a few areas. And then once you do that, you can start looking for people uh, in our community, let's say, that are in that area for some advice. But in the end... You know, there's a place where you just say, I'm going to step out and do this on my own if that's what it takes. And then you build and develop relationships around your work and your life, etc. Um, I, I think there's a lot of opportunity just to do that as well. I, I understand when someone says it's hard to leave because I have family here and I, you know, I want to see them and they won't go with me. That, but I, I have a little less understanding of people like it's scary to go out on your own because I guess I've always lived that way. Uh, I moved here. I did have a friend. I had a single friend here uh, when I moved here in 1993, uh, and we did share the, the price of rent in his apartment. But if I, if I had not come here, I, I was really looking at going to Montana at the time. And the only reason I didn't move to Montana is he talked me into coming here first and checking things out. He said, I think you'll really appreciate the opportunities that exist here from a standpoint of, you know, getting that first real job out of the military and all. There's, it's a booming economy. Uh, there's a lot of people. There's a lot of opportunities. There's a lot of people you can meet. So he talked me into coming here basically as a visit. I was going to be here for a couple months. And then I was going to pack up and move to Montana. My car broke down, and it was a problem that was difficult to fix, uh, especially being on a very small amount of unemployment and not having a lot of money. So that kept me here longer until I was able to get a truck. And uh, by the time that happened, I had you know, found opportunity, just like he said I would, so I didn't leave. But, you know, at 21, just out of the military, such as, you know, you mentioned yourself, your prior military, If it had been Montana, I would have just drove my ass to Montana and started trying to find an opportunity. And I think that if, if that's where you, you know, use the support if you can find it. But if you really want to take a chance at something, no matter how old you are, it will never be easier than it is today. Every, every year that you, you do more, you build more, you have more, you're more vested in something, the harder it will get to leave. And, and the thing about leaving and trying is if it doesn't work, you can always go back. It's not like, it's not like immigrating to, you know, Russia or something and renouncing your citizenship and you can't come home. If you go from New York to freaking New Hampshire and decide, I don't like it, you can go back to New York or you can go somewhere else. That's the beauty of living in a republic where we have this last option for liberty, which is using the republic itself by moving away from states that do stupid shit. And frankly, on the, of the list of states that do stupid shit, New York is at the top of that with Illinois and California. I mean, and there's a whole bunch of New England states that go in that list, too, that really are the dumbest-ass states in the country. Uh, the Northwest is getting stupid, too. I had a great conversation with the interview we didn't get to run yesterday about that, uh, with, even though that wasn't what the whole interview was about. But these states are, are pushing their people out. So 
don't be afraid to just take a shot at it if that's what you have to do, but reach out to Zello and see if they can help you. Hey, Jack, this is Dan from Prescott, Arizona, and I have a question about cover cropping some land that uh, we won't be able to put in production crops for about a year to a year and a half. Uh, we have a uh, large property that we do plan on doing production crops here uh, sooner than later, uh, and I would like to cover crop it uh, in the meantime um, with some good uh, some good ground cover that will uh, add in some nitrogen and start breaking up that soil. Um, we will probably be uh, using the neighbor's goats and our own goats uh, during that time to go out and graze it, and then a uh, combination of um, tilling that in and, and chopping drop methods. I'd love your suggestions on some uh some mixtures of seed to uh that would that would help us uh, accomplish what we're looking to do. Thanks so very much. Love the show. Bye. Well please so I don't have to repeat it. Keep in mind a lot of what I said earlier about certain crops choke other things out and if we don't have a succession planned then we end up with bare soil and we really need to think about that. Do we really want cover crop here or pasture establishment? This sounds like pasture establishment. You start talking about grazing. I don't care if it's goats, cows, pigs, whatever. You're talking about pasture. And when you start talking about tilling, you make me a little bit nervous because you got to get the timing of that right. And when we till, and I'm not even just being the anti-tiller here that's like we destroy soil, biozones. Tilling has a place. It's for initial establishment. And do we need to be doing that? And one of the things you need to understand when you till is in soil, anywhere you go, there's a bazillion seeds per, like, you know, square acre that are banked in there. And they are seeds from everything from the most desirable species to the most noxious weeds that you can find. And if you till, you create a soil disturbance. And when we create a soil disturbance, we create a germination trigger. When we create a germination trigger, whatever's triggered by that trigger gets triggered and gets triggered really hard and starts to show up. So we might disc or, or till a field and put down things we really want to grow, and that stuff might grow if we time it right and plant it right. But if there's a lot of other things in there that are triggered by loose soil, that trigger will trigger them, and they will show up, and they may not be the things we're most looking for. And by not tilling and grazing and just simply sowing small amounts of seed behind where we've grazed, then we have a much more modest trigger, and we're putting the species that we've added into a condition where they're in a great spot uh, to actually end up growing. And with goats, goats are probably not going to eat seeds, so we may actually do small amounts of seeding ahead of the goats, move the goats through, which are going to then consume and graze off the best. Now, goats will graze far, you know, far harder on, on a property than something like a cow will. But if we're moving them rather quickly, they will eat, you know, the, the, as Paul Wheaton calls it, the ice cream first. And they're going to trample a lot of that biomass down on top of the seed that we've put there, and they're going to goat poop on it. Uh, so that's going to be probably more likely if what we want is pasture to be effective than tilling. If what you eventually want is agricultural type fields, then I think you'd still do the same thing. Um, and as far as nitrogen fixation, um, you know, you're, you, you don't really need nitrogen fixers in a grazing system. They're not bad to have, and, and I would have some, but you don't really need them because the action of the ruminant consuming vegetation 
ruminating it and pooping it out is going to give you plenty of nitrogen. So the, the graze system has far less need of nitrogen-fixing plants and let's say a food forest system that we can't graze until a certain level of establishment because the animals will kill the plants that we've just put money and time into. But when I'm looking at this as something that you're going to be doing as a pasture, you know, small amounts of clover. You can have too much clover, though, and animals can overgraze it. So small amounts of clover uh, spread out and integrated with perennial grasses is probably some of your best. If you have more alkaline-leaning soil than what will do better than most clovers, which prefer acidic environments, would be another nitrogen fixer like alfalfa, which is also high-quality graze. So I think you really need to think about, well, what do I really want the long-term future of this thing to be? Because when you say, I'm not going to be there to, ma to manage it, And if you're not sure, then the easiest thing might be to just simply graze it and not do anything else. You'd be amazed at how much pasture improves when it's just grazed properly. Now, the key is grazed properly. Paddocks and movement. And if you look at the work of Alan Savory, for instance, he goes in a place you can't find grass. There's very little forbs and stuff for the animals to graze. Grazes it. And they don't put a seed down, and you come back in two or three years, and it's beautiful. So as long as you're starting with something, you're ahead of that. But that is key to how you manage that grazing rotation. And uh, also looking to see, is there anything there that the animals refuse to graze that could become noxious, and by grazing it, we could advantage that? If so, then maybe we need to make some mechanical... Uh, removal of some of those things. Like if you have a certain thistle or something like that, there's small amounts of it, but the goats don't eat it. Now, I think they probably will. But if they're not eating something that you don't want more of, even something as simple as cutting it back mechanically after a grazing episode. And then again, small amounts of seed. Seeds that I would use, again, clover, perennial grasses. I can't see any harm, no matter what you plan to do with it, to also seeding things like purple top turnip, and daikon radish. Those are two fantastic tubers. Uh, they have an edible yield. If they go wild on your system and, and established, and they probably will, that's great too. Um, when they die, they do a lot to help the soil absorb a lot of water in that time that it can in the spring. They're not going to be harmful to your animals that eat them. I don't think you'll ever be upset about them being there. If we plant enough daikon radish, it's like hiring someone to come out with a post hole digger and dig a hole and fill it with worm castings and do it again and again and again everywhere a daikon was because that's basically what's going to happen. That daikon's going to die in the ground and worms and stuff are going to come in there and consume it when it's rotting. And I will tell you one thing about daikon. Um, when it dies, and it will all probably die at one time, it is going to start rotting and is going to release an odor that is kind of similar to the stink that's in propane gas. It won't last a long time, but it will be there, and it's good for people to know that uh, if you're going to do that. It's, it's, not, it's not harmful in any way. It's just I've experienced it before, and you're like, ah, is there a gas leak? And it's 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 the daikon rotting, and it usually lasts about a week or two, and then it, it, it goes away. But it's a good thing now, especially if you're going to do several acres or more of, like, tillage radish or something like that. So that's kind of the approach I would take. Your annuals, I would want things that, that die off in the soil. Again, uh, and you can do just about anything. People say, well, what should I use for, for seed mix? All of it. 
but small amount, not heroic amounts, small amounts either in front of or behind grazing is probably your best bet. If you're going to till this, I mean, I think you really need to get with like NRCS uh, and, and get a plan for why. Why would you till this? And it, there might be a reason, but it's probably not until you're there and you're doing a crop establishment. I'm just going to leave it at that. Let's take another one. Jack, what towing motor would you recommend? Uh, details. I have a uh, 12-foot aluminum like rowboat, and I'd like to put something on it. And so I'm looking at on Amazon. There's a Makota C255 freshwater transom mounted trolling motor for 223 and there's a Newport Vessels 55 pounds for 199. Uh, look like good options, but I think I remember you saying something about uh, like an auto drive feature, uh, you know, where it can make a loop or something, <laughs> you know, a racetrack loop. How much are those? Are those something you add to it or is that something that's built into the trolling motor? I've never owned one before. I have a good um, deep cycle 12 volt battery to go with it. Uh, I assume I need some cables to hook it up. Um, anything else you can think of? And, you know, do I need a fish finder, too? Um, my youngest son is really into fishing, and I'm trying to, to get back into it and help him. So thanks a lot. Take care. Bye. So honestly, on a boat of that size, you're probably not going to want to make the investment for the electronics that I have in my center console because it's a it's probably more than boat's worth. Um the Minkota uh, iPilot is what I have, and it uses GPS technology, and it works in consort with uh, Fish Finder and Sonar system. And it can work with Lowrance, but it is designed specifically to work with uh, the Helix um, from uh, Humminbird. And Helix 7 and above are probably best recommended. And so with a fish finder alone, you're looking with the radar and everything in it and side finder and all, you're looking at like somewhere between $700 and $900 for the fish finder. And then you're looking at like another 2000 to $3,500 for the motor, depending on what you buy. I would not invest that kind of money in electronics into a 12-foot aluminum rowboat. I really wouldn't. Um, either of the motors that you re uh, asked about will work just fine. Um, and... I, you don't tell, you didn't tell me whether you have a V hole or a flat bottom boat, but um, a 12 foot flat bottom is going to have a fairly narrow keel and it's not going to be real real stable. Uh, so you got to be careful of the water that you get into with them. But that size boat, when you're looking at something like 55 pounds of thrust or above, you got plenty to move that boat. I think I think the uh, the Motorola that's on my center console is something like 65 or 75 pounds of thrust, and it's a very large boat. It's not a large. It's not a very large boat, but it's a very large boat in comparison to what you're talking about, and it moves a damn thing. So uh, I, I used to run a 14 foot John boat, and I had I think a a 35 or 45 pound cheap Minkota trolling motor on it, and it moved the boat just fine. Um, you're just not talking about a fast-moving boat under any circumstances. Now, you mentioned a transom mount. There's no doubt that is the easiest thing to do in an aluminum boat. It's, you get a, a, a clamp-on transom mount uh, trolling motor. Uh, you set a, a marine battery back there, and you, you clip onto it, and you go off trolling around. If what you're going to do is 
troll around the lakes and little little you know coves and stuff like that and anchor somewhere and fish or drift somewhere and fish, that's fine. If you're going to want to be able to position the boat and maintain position with the boat using the motor, for instance, you're going to fish, we like to fish for sand bass, and we fish for those over humps. So you'll use a fish finder, we'll talk about sonar type system, we'll talk about that in a second, uh, to locate a structure on the bottom, and then maybe do something like throw a marker buoy out. Best five bucks you'll ever spend if you don't have the electronics to do this work for you. Uh, so now we've located that structure, and we want to stay over it. Doing that with a transom-mounted trolling motor in even like a you know four- or five-mile-an-hour wind is a nightmare because the way you want to move a boat to control it when you're trying to stay over an area or line up with something on a shoreline or something like that is you want to pull, not push the boat. And you can do that with a transom mount motor, but what's going to happen is just a square back transom of your boat is going against, so you're going in reverse now. It's going to constantly cause water to wake up over the back of your boat, make you wet and flood your boat, and hopefully there's a bilge pump in there. Please invest a few bucks in a bilge pump with these small boats. They will sink rather fast if you do not and you get enough water taken on too quickly. Get yourself a little manual pump as well. Two is one, one is none. But it doesn't really work well. And I, I, again, I used to run a little 14-foot John. I speak from experience. It's complicated a little bit, but it makes a lot of sense to figure out what you can fabricate to put a, uh, a bow mount trolling motor in your boat. If you look at every bass boat, every professional fishing guide boat, whatever, even if they have a, a second trolling motor in the rear to do some things or some anchor poles or something, they always have their primary trolling motor up in the bow because you get the most amount of control that way. So, you know, usually you're not going to... And you can do a hand tiller with that. I actually don't like foot control motors. They... I'm not real great with them. I'd rather have a, a, a tiller, a hand tiller front bow mount and sit up in the front of the boat instead of sitting in the back and trying to run it from the front to the back. I'll give you another piece of advice. This is advice anybody that's doing a uh, John boat style boat and you're going to fish in the back and use the hand tiller motor. You've already got your back there, your weight. you got the motor back there. If you've got a gas motor in addition to a trolling motor, you got that back there. You've got a gas tank back there. And the last thing you need is that big-ass heavy battery back there. And it makes sense to run some power cables and make sure you run you know, heavy-gauge enough wire for the distance you have to cover to where your trolling motor goes up in the bow of the boat to distribute the weight more efficient, you know, more balanced across that boat. That will keep that front of that boat from coming up and more of a, you know, kind of a on plane, even though you're not going to be on plane with a trolling motor, but you have that effect of that boat riding in the water the way it's supposed to instead of being tilted back. When I did uh, my customization of my John boat, that was the number one thing. I also put some decking in it, and the, the, the front decking, I actually used heavier material than the back decking to weigh that front down because I ended up making the decision it wasn't worth my time to, tr to make a bow mount motor work. So by weighing the front down, I had a lot more control pushing the boat. But moving that battery to the front, and I actually had two batteries in it, moving those batteries to the front made that boat do so much better on water, both with the little five-horse gas motor and with the Minkota trolling motor. So I would not recommend stepping up to something like the, 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 you know, the, the Hummingbird Helix 7. 
for that level of boat. What I would actually suggest that you do for your fish finder and sonar, and it's not a different functionalities, but you want, there's no reason in today's modern world to have a sonar and a fish finder, in my opinion, especially on the type of boat you're talking about. You want one that does fish finding and a good sonar. And I would honestly look on Craigslist, and I would look for guys selling off their, their electronics. And I wouldn't even worry about the brand or the manufacturer or whatever. I'd find something that seems like it might work. I'd go research it and see if it's a decent you know, unit, what it's, what it's sold for new, what he's asking for, what kind of deal you can get. There's plenty of it out there. Because what happens is guys upgrade their electronics all the time. Usually the stores they buy from don't really want their five, six-year-old electronics or their three- or four-year-old electronics. And that stuff for the type of fishing you'll be doing in a boat like this is you know, sometimes more than adequate. You may be able to get a, a sonar that four years ago was $800 for 100 bucks. And it's just as good as it was for you know when it was new. Uh, it just it's not the latest and greatest. And uh, explaining how to use and what to look for with a sonar and a fish finder is beyond what I can do in audio. But uh, the big thing with 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 your your electronics is being able to know your depth and see structure. That's actually in many instances more important than seeing fish because a lot of times you get false signals from even decent electronics on fish and what have you. But structure always means the potential for fish or being able to see large quantities of like bait fish and all. That's usually pretty easy to do with even low-grade electronics, and that gives you a lot of information uh, that you can use. So that's my thoughts on that. Hopefully that helps you and other folks that are looking to get into their boating this season. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, Centralist in North Texas, uh, Lifetime MSD. Just wanted to pass on a, uh, an interesting little Leo encounter that I had. Uh, I got pulled over here in North Texas for, uh, uh, just a minor traffic infraction. Ended up, uh, going straight on a left turn lane when I didn't really re realize the sign. At any rate, got pulled right over and, uh, uh, fairly normal stop otherwise, uh, except, uh, I am a, a concealed carry holder licensed in the state of Texas. And, uh, of course, naturally I, I, uh, I said, you know, officer, I'm a licensed concealed carry, uh, uh holder. I'm, I'm supposed to tell you that. And, uh, he says, okay, and, uh, you know, I'll make you a deal. Um, I won't show you mine if you won't show me yours. And <laughs> didn't really think much about it until I pulled away and I kind of thought that's, Kind of an odd remark. Um, anyway, otherwise the guy was very cordial and nice and uh, was professional. But that, that just that remark just kind of hit me the wrong way afterwards. I'm wondering if uh, you know maybe there's some uh, law enforcement officers out there that don't uh, just feel like maybe they need to check someone that, uh, that that has something like that to say. Well, okay, okay, I'm I'm here at the same level you are too, pal, or something. But uh, I don't know. Maybe I made him uncomfortable. Anyway, just something to uh, kind of make any other uh, concealed carry holders aware of if they hear a remark like that. Um, if there's anything else I would have done differently, may have been just to say back, uh, you know, well, there's no reason why uh, I would show you my officer and uh, continue to comply as usual. Anyway, just thought that was kind of interesting. But uh, thanks again for all you do, Jack. Talk to you soon. Bye. So I think one of the most important things in this whole scenario is understanding what you're required uh, to do uh, and, and based on the state you're in. So in Texas, we have a duty to inform when you're asked for identification. 
If you are not asked for identification, you have no duty to inform the officer. And in this case, you were asked for identification when you're pulled over for a traffic infraction. Contrary to what the YouTube might tell you, you are being detained. When you get pulled over for running a light or because your, your light's out or whatever, you are being detained by the officer legally, I might add, under our law. Whether you think it should be that way or not doesn't matter. That's the way that it is, and it's the way that a judge will see it. And at the point that he says, uh, I need to see your driver's license, proof of insurance, right, that type of thing, in Texas you have a duty as a concealed carry holder, if you're carrying, you do not have a duty to inform him that you're a concealed carry holder if you're not carrying, though it may be a good idea anyway if he happens to notice that when he runs your, your stuff because he will get that little bit of information whether you show him your, your concealed carry or not in this state. So, you did the right thing by informing him. Now, did he mean anything obnoxious by what he said? I'm going to file this one under some doctors have poor bedside manner, but they're pretty good doctors. And here's what I mean by that. What I've generally been told when I've notified an officer, um, and this is even before uh, I had a concealed carry permit in the state of Texas because you can carry a, a weapon in your vehicle without a concealed carry permit in Texas. And I feel that if I'm being asked to do something like open my console, if that officer might notice a weapon there, then I'm going to say, officer, I want you to know I have a gun that's loaded for my protection in my vehicle, and it's right here. Before I proceed, what would you like me to do for you? And that generally, concealed carry or not, as long as it's legal to have a loaded gun in your vehicle uh, in the state that you're in, it's going to set the officer at ease. Because people that want to shoot you as a law enforcement, you know, shoot a law enforcement, don't say, officer, I'd like you to know that. Right? So you, you, all that ego trip shit you see people doing and, and taunting cops and all, if you're going to practice that, and I don't think you should, but if you're going to, you damn well don't do it armed. Because when you have somebody being agitational and I see now the butt of a weapon, I have reason to fear for my life if I'm a cop or if I'm anybody in that situation where you're behaving in an adversarial or aggressive manner. Okay, But they do it too. I understand that. I'm just telling you how not to get your ass shot. So what I've generally heard from law enforcement officers is, okay, thank you for telling that, me that. Just leave it right there. Just leave it where it is and don't touch it and we'll be fine. Because they already know, if I was going to reach down and try to shoot the guy, I'm not going to inform him. So I've just, I've just reduced his stress level immensely. I think most officers that are you know, not brain dead would rather pull over a person that legally possesses a gun that tells them than pull over a person that doesn't but not be sure. Because the second I've told you, I have clearly shown you I have no hostile intentions with that weapon or I wouldn't have told you about it. So I think what he was actually saying is what most cops say in that situation. I don't need you to do anything with it. Just leave it alone. Thank you for telling me. But he just had poor bedside manner in his delivery. And, and what he was saying is, you know, keep your hands off of it. Keep your hands where I can see them, and I'm not worried about that thing. But if you go reaching down there and grabbing it now, and I know it's there, I might show you mine. Do you, do you, I mean, that's, that's where I think he was coming. I don't think he meant anything... Uh, adversarial or aggressive about it, I think he was trying to lighten the situation and maybe wasn't good at it. And some people are just 
naturally intimidating, naturally gruff, naturally curmudgeon. Like I've been told by people many times that I'm an intimidating person, and I do not comprehend why. I mean, it, where I'm like is even when I was doing sales training. You know, I had a manager one time tell, told me, he said, look, I, you're doing a good job, and no one's really complaining, but your entire staff of 35 salespeople, the majority of them are terrified of you. And I was at the time, I was like 29 years old, and some of these people had been in sales for 30 years. And I, I don't know what that is. I don't know what vibe that is. But sometimes you might run into a law enforcement officer who just has that vibe. So when they make a statement like that, like somebody else might have made that statement, you might have laughed, and they might have snirked, like laughed back, like, okay, yeah, we're cool with each other. But that person's delivery might just not be there. And, and I think we need, in, until a cop is lying to you through his teeth and you know it, or violating your rights, or asking you to disclose information that you know you do not have to disclose, until that happens in our encounters with law enforcement, we need to give them the benefit of the doubt. Not because they're a cop and cops are special snowflakes that never do anything wrong to anybody that all should be bootlicked and worshipped, but because that's how we should treat most people. As long as the interaction that we're having is a reasonable interaction to be having, and when you look at what the cop's job is, you change lanes without signaling, you you know run off the road a little bit, and maybe you're intoxicated, might be a danger or something, you're doing 75 in a, in a 40. I mean, any of those reasons, whether we think those laws should be there or not, in the commission of that man's job is a reasonable interaction to be having. And when we're interacting with people, and they're not being assholes, and they're not being threatening, and they're not violating our rights... We should give anybody up to the point where we see some reason to do otherwise the benefit of the doubt. And I'm going to tell you, you can be the cop block idiot on YouTube lecturing the cop about the Constitution, and you can be right, or you can be reasonable and decent in your interactions with law enforcement, and you can be freaking happy. And there's times that it's more important to be happy than to be right. And in this instance, by doing, and I'm not putting down the guy that called in at all, but by doing that, you end up being right and happy. Because it is reasonable for a law enforcement officer that has pulled you over for an infraction to ask for your identification. I do not believe it is reasonable for a law enforcement officer to walk up to you on the street and ask you for identification for no reason at all. And I would decline to provide identification in that situation politely and decently. And I wouldn't start lecturing him on the Constitution. I would say you have no probable cause to ask for my identity. And frankly, at this point, I don't like the way you're treating me, and I have a simple question for you. Am I being detained? Because if I am not being detained, I am leaving right now. And I need to know if you're detaining me or not. And if you are, I will comply with your request, but then I need to know what I'm being detained for. Because there's no reason for you to come up here and bother me right now. Now, I actually have never had that problem, but I'm not going to say that it doesn't happen. And I think there's a big difference in those two situations. Anyway, let's, uh, let's take another call. But you know, that, that brings up an interesting thing. If you have no right to ask for my ID, do I still have a duty to inform you? My understanding of law in the state of Texas would be yes. The minute that officer asks you for identification, you do have a duty to inform, which may make that a sticky wicket. And... You know, you may want to provide your identification at that point. Let's take another one. Zach, appreciate your show, man. Just wanted to shoot you a quick question here. Uh, have backyard chickens, 
and I was wondering if, if is it possible <clears throat> to feed them crepe myrtle seeds? Got a couple of big crepe myrtles, um, live in North Carolina, and they produce hundreds, maybe thousands of seeds. Just kind of curious if a chicken could eat them as some sort of uh, fodder. Uh, appreciate it. Thanks. Bye. So my answer would be yes, with a caution. There are many things that animals can eat that are not harmful to them that become harmful when they're fed in excessive quantities. And I do not know if that, you know, what that threshold would be or might be for chickens with crepe myrtle seeds. I do know this. Chickens eat crepe myrtle seeds, and they don't get sick and they don't die. I was able, I did some research to make sure that I was right, and I found one person on one of the, you know, basically the, the, the teacup chicken forums, as I call them, the people that are like, they dress their chickens up and you know, all these kind of fruit bats. Um, but uh, she was convinced that her chicken died from crepe myrtles because that was the only thing the chicken could have eaten, and they had just mowed the lawn and the, whatever, shut up, because everybody else says, my chickens eat them all the time. They're also eaten heavily by songbirds in the winter. They're actually one of the great reasons to plant crepe myrtles is it does help support migratory seed-eating birds and attract them to your area while they're moving through when there's not a lot out there because they hang on the tree or the bush for a long time. However, if you were going to start bringing them crepe myrtle seed, uh, I would tell you that you would probably want to do that in moderation as a supplement to their primary diet, not as a replacement for it. And I think that would be a much safer approach. If you have free-ranging chickens, this may or may not be important for you to know. But I also found quite a few people that said that they have free-ranging chickens, and they now have crepe myrtles growing all over their property, coming up from seed, as the seed will tend to pass through the chicken's uh, digestive system many times without actually being digested, uh, and then encapsulated in a nice little lump of chicken poo. It's perfectly ready to go as a Fukuoka-style seed ball and make a new crepe myrtle. That could be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on where you are and what you're doing with your property. It will also say to me this, if that's the case, a lot of that seed probably has a very low to no nutritional value for the bird if it's not being digested. However, the way crepe myrtle seeds are on the tree is it kind of looks like a little berry, and that berry has like a, a papery wrapping, and inside are a bunch of little tiny seeds. And I've noticed when I, when I used to have chickens free-ranging that when they would go eat the ones that fall off of the crepe myrtle eventually, they seem to eat the kind of peck at it and eat almost all of it. So it may be more the fruit that they get the nutritional value from than the seed within the fruit, because it technically would be a fruit. So try it in moderation, a little bit at a time. I also think that um, throwing it in, like if you're doing bin composting with your chickens, and to me it's the easiest composting in the world, that's where we take some sort of a container, we throw our all the chicken scraps in there, they go in there to get it instead of just throwing it all over the place uh, when it's full. We put a second one in, we let them keep processing that first one until they, they're not interested in it anymore, We go dump it somewhere, throw some straw on top of it, wet it down, and leave it for six months. And to me, that's the easiest compost you'll ever make, and it's good compost. So um, you might want to like pitch it into their compost. I've been giving our little bantam chickens, uh, you know, a handful of sunflower microgreens every day, and I used to throw it on the floor of the aviary, and I'd come back in there and they ate ninety percent of it, and a little bit of it's laying there on the ground, walked on and crapped. And I'm like, you're a dumbass, Jack. Throw it in the compost bin. 
So pretty much they get almost everything that's like a treat or a snack thrown in their compost bin now. Because that encourages them to get in there and do the work that they're supposed to be doing instead of just screwing off all the time like a bunch of little screw-offs. Anyway, with that, let's uh, take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Lynn from New York City. And my question is what to focus on when getting ready to move to the country. I am turning 30 soon, and the goal is to move to the country in two or three years. Clearly, city life sucks. And I'm not a real city person anyway. I grew up in a small village in Germany, and um, uh, we had a garden there and dogs, and we were shooting pigeons and stuff like that. So I'm really excited to leave this dump and live in the country. And hopefully my kids will be much more independent there than the city kids, and they will totally have their own garden. <laughs> anyway, I'm learning a lot of different things right now, like um, how to build a chicken coop, and beekeeping, back to eating gardening, composting, permaculture. Uh, we actually have a permaculture design certification program here, which I'm thinking of doing but not sure yet. Besides that, I'm also learning stuff that I can actually practice for real, like cooking and preserving, soap making, microgreens, growing herbs and herbalism. And I'm also working on some side hustles that may add some um, additional income in the future. So now with all these different interests and skills, I'm wondering if there is anything in particular that I should focus on that will help me out in the long run. Uh, I heard that learning plumbing and electric is a great skill to have, but is that something that you can just learn on the side and just pick up? Or what about getting a gun license? Is that something I should look into? Go to a shooting range? There's just too much to learn. And I know it depends on your personal interests, but I hope you have some advice of how to make the best use of my time right now. Thanks for a great podcast. I'm super new, but I'm already addicted. Take care. You know, there's a, a, a real case for doing some of the stuff you're doing, like learning how to can and preserve food and things like that. That's that's something you can do now. Um, learning to cook new things with the types of stuff that you'll be growing is a great idea. Researching different things you want to plant and grow It'd be a really good thing to be doing for anybody that's thinking about, like, I'm going to eventually move to my homestead. I live in an apartment. I live in a city, whatever, right now. I can't do this stuff. Because a lot of times people go, well, I'm going to go plant an apricot tree. Well, do you like apricots? Or can you find a way to like apricots? I'm not a huge fan of sitting down and eating apricots. Well, when I made apricot meat, all of a sudden I became a fan. Right? So uh, that might be something that you you, you kind of want to do is, is just, like, figure out some of the things that you want to grow and then come up with different ways to cook it. Uh, not just preserve, but actually to cook it, because you'll either determine as like this is great, uh, or I don't want, I don't actually want to grow this, and that'll save you time and mistakes when you get where you're going. I think the other thing you need to think about, and I'm telling you, I am a big fan of the the concept that New York City is a great place to visit, but I wouldn't want to live there. But I will tell you, there is something. For being able to at 6.30 at night, when you hadn't had a thought in the world about what you're going to do, all of a sudden go, I got a craving for sushi. And have like 12 fantastic options at your fingertips. And until you're not in that environment anymore, you may not appreciate that type of consumerism. And, and that's what it is, but it's not necessarily evil. 
Um, I, I'm a capitalist. I think it's great that people are able to take a raw piece of fish and turn it into something amazing and get five times what you get for it under a, 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 a countertop uh, in a grocery store or whatever. And, and I'm, it's so good that I even know that I'm willing to pay for it, right? So I think that's great. So where I'm going with that is you might want to think about the things that you do like about the city. The things that are conveniences and services and things like that. And, and then try to find some level of support for that in where you choose to move. You know, we just did a show this week on homesteading on, on Tuesday. And it'd be good, I think, for you to go listen to that one if you haven't already. Because I've, I've talked about a lot of things like that. But, you know, trying to find what uh, David Holgram, co-founder of Permaculture, termed the urban rural fringe. Uh, having lived in the suburban hellhole, the urban hellhole, which were both nice places but hellholes to me, kind of like you're saying, uh, and having lived way out there in, in, in no man's land, and having lived now in the urban rural fringe, I'm going to tell you I think that the urban rural fringe is the best location for the most people. It's not the best location, period, It's not the best location for everyone, because that would be the best location. It's not the optimal location because I say so. I think the, the most number of people will be happiest if they can find that urban-rural fringe where the resources and, and consumer-level things and opportunities and the ability to go to a concert or whatever it is, go see the symphony or whatever it is that does it for you, is maybe it's a little bit of a drive, but it's not... Hey, you know, we got to figure out how to get a house sitter and go spend the night if we're going to go to the city. I don't think that most people are going to be happy like that. And, and you got to look at like the town. Well, there's a you know a good sized little town here, but what does it have? So I think it would be a, a you know this may not be what you called in for, but it may be the most valuable thing that you can do right now is a lifestyle evaluation. What are the things that make your life good? Because it, it doesn't all suck, or you wouldn't have stayed there this long probably started with a job opportunity, and you're probably finding another way to fulfill that. Uh, now, that could be because you're getting an opportunity to move that is directly career-related, and that may restrict where you can live. But then I, I still think you owe it to yourself to do this analysis. What are the things that I would be really unhappy if we didn't have access to anymore? And how can I make sure that in conjunction with this move the hell out of this infested city that I'll have those. And then what are the things you really want in your life and finding the place where you can have them both? It takes some time. It takes some effort. It took us eight months. Eight months of looking to find this house. And every single day within those eight months that we spent stressed out, are we going to find it, turning down opportunities that just weren't right, every second was worth the effort to have the freedom to do what we want now and the lifestyle to go along with it. So that's my advice there. Let's take another one. I think we got one more and we're done. Hey, Jack, I have a question on investing. Uh, I have heard in the past you say that you don't believe in investing until you have about 50000 to start with. I wasn't sure if you meant 50000 in the bank or 50000 to actually invest. I'm thinking about starting with twenty. I have a family friend uh, who – does investments and usually doesn't take anybody that doesn't have a uh, million dollars to start with. But because of our relationship, he's been willing to start investing money. It's something that I don't really have an understanding of, nor the time to get into. 
Uh, is, is this something that you think would be an acceptable route to start with, or do you think that I should continue to hold on to that money until I build up more wealth? I appreciate you. Thank you. Well, I'm glad you asked that, sir, because I think there might be a bit of a misunderstanding. First of all, if you have a a financial advisor that through personal relationships generally only works with credited investors, um, and, and they're willing to take you on as a small client, as a friends and family type thing, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. These are the people that the the guy that works for Edward Jones pretends to be but isn't. The people that work with multimillionaires and up are the people that really know their shit. So unless he's lying or he's created that niche for himself by saying that's what he does, which is another way of saying he's lying, uh, if he really is working with people with net worth over a million dollars of investable wealth, then you need to work with that person if they will take you. Because it is the only way, short of getting a million dollars to invest, that you're going to get that quality of an advisor. And, and I'm sorry to all of you that are consumer-level financial advisors, but what you are is relationship salespeople, and you do not even make your own recommendations. They're made for by you know a computer algorithm that Edward Jones uses or you know American Express uses or whatever and maybe you do have the freedom that you can but 90% of the time you take a client profile and it comes back with a, a pie chart that you sell the person on and your job is to keep them with your company and from leaving you right it is not to manage their wealth you do not manage their wealth people like you're talking about do manage wealth if you can get that, that quality of an advisor take the opportunity now on the number of $50,000. I actually think that's John Pugliano's number. I think my number is closer to $30,000. And we are talking about investable wealth. Uh, in other words, if you have $30,000 in the bank, uh, and you, but you're going to put, uh, you want to keep $10,000 in reserve plus a $1,000 emergency fund, I think that's a fine idea, and you should. Uh, maybe even more than that. It's really not meeting my criteria, but I, I do not mind a person who says, I have $5,000 to start my investing with, I'm going to invest. That's fine. I, I, what we're actually saying is the following. People will sit around and spend hours upon hours trying to pick the right stock or mutual fund or thing to invest $2,000 in, let's say. And let's say they do well. And, and, and with conventional securities and investments, make it 10% a year. You can do better, but it's not bad, especially on the average over a period of time. So $2,000 on a 10% return is a $200 return of investment. That's fine. But if you are a young person just starting out and just starting to save your money, how long would it take you with a side hustle or what have you to make $200? And it's probably less than a week. Well, if you can do that every week and make that $200 every week, compared to that $200 over a year, and let's say you take two weeks off so it's 50 weeks, well, that's $10,000. And I don't know if that's delivering pizzas three nights a week, driving Uber four nights a week, whatever. But when you're young and you're starting out, The number one tool you have to build wealth is not investing your income. It's increasing your income by increasing the labor output quotient that you're doing or increasing your earnings. 
Many people would, would be far better off if, as long as they commit to saving the differential to saying, this month I'm going to find a job that pays $2 an hour more and is still full-time. And if you don't find one, that's okay. Try it again next month. Because what does that represent if we do that? Now, that's not as good as being able to make $200 in a side hustle, but just getting a $2 an hour raise is an extra four grand a year. A little bit of overtime and all to cover the taxes, and that's four grand that you can invest versus $200 that you got as that ROI. Now, here's what people will say, and this is a completely reasonable thing to say. Well, I could have had the $200 of ROI on the passive investment and the $4,000 from the raise and the $10,000 from being an Uber driver three nights a week. Yes, and if that's what you want to do, you should do all of them. But if you're stressing about where to put $2,000 or $10,000, and it's eating up your time, you're best served just leaving it in a bank account and go out and earn more money. Until you earn enough money to be able to work with even a... there are I need to say this. There are some decent financial advisors that will work with you with ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars uh that you know might work for a firm like Edward Jones or uh American Express or any of the other ones. And and, and they will do a reasonable job of allocating your money into a diversified portfolio of mutual funds. Which means you can do it yourself. Which means if 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 you really want to do investing until you qualify for the level of person that's willing to work with you then that's what you should do for yourself. It's not like it's difficult. And then just watch for megatrends. And when there's a megatrend that, hey, this market's at an all-time high, uh, I've done pretty well, let's exit those positions or part of those positions, put some cash in reserves, tie the boat up to shore, wait for things to wash themselves out and go back in. That's not day trading. I don't even consider that trading. I consider that getting out of the way of a train that's coming straight at you going ding, 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 That was 2008, 2009. I wasn't a genius that I saw that coming. Anybody could have seen that coming. There's an investment guy with a commercial out right now on YouTube I saw, and I don't know if he's any good or not, but the commercial was great. He just shows the stock market going up and down, up and down, up and down, and has this little five-year-old girl there and says, now that the market's here, where do you think it's going to go next? She's like, down. He's like, see, it's not hard. And he's got a point. There is a, a point at which we realize that we've kind of run out this run and we're going to go into a correctional phase. And you can either trade out of that or you can ride through it. It's up to you. And dollar cost average. All of these methods work. It's just how much are you comfortable losing. And what I find is the less people have, the more uncomfortable they are at losing 2 or 3% of it, which it seems in, 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 you know, completely opposite of the way things should be. If I have a thousand dollars and I lost two percent on it, I lost two bucks. But a person will actually worry about that, and then they get excited. Well, it went up five points, so you made five dollars. You know, I mean, or fifty bucks, right? You made fifty bucks. I'm sorry, you lost twenty bucks, and you made fifty bucks on the on on the the, the gain there. And and that's why people like John Pugliano will just say, just save your money because. They don't honestly have time to deal with you being upset over $50 or being excited over $50. They just don't. Or even $500 or even $1,000. Because in the long haul, those numbers are not what's really important. It's a consistent ROI and reinvestment. It's important. So I, I hope you understand that 
I think it's okay for you to invest at any point, but you only invest what you can afford to lose or lock up for a period of time. Uh, so we need to have that $1,000 emergency fund, and we need to have 30 to 90 days of income in reserve. Then we need to start saving to invest, and then there is a reasonable amount of money before it's worth even fooling around with. And, and that probably is in the neighborhood of ten to twenty thousand dollars, and that's probably what this guy's willing to take you with, you know, twenty, thirty grand. Uh, and he probably can do some good for you. But again, you do have to understand, like, even with twenty thousand dollars, in doing a really good job and being a conservative, responsible, and, and wealth manager, fifteen percent is, is pretty solid uh, as a target. You're still only looking at like three grand a year, and I'm not saying not to do it. Again, I'm saying you should take this opportunity. What John and I are trying to say is for most people that are stressing out about that $3,000, you can go make five, six, or seven times that in extra money this year and just save it. Because what will happen is when you have a significant amount to invest, you'll be more careful with who you trust your money with. And when you do that, you'll get in the right mentality because what we're really trying to teach you is the psychology to win with money. The exception, and i got to say this before we wrap up today. If you go to work somewhere and they have a 401k plan, specifically a Roth, and always do the Roth, and I won't get into why today, if you don't do the Roth, you're wrong, period. I don't care. Don't email me about it. You're wrong. You're making a dumbass move. Roth, always Roth. If you have a Roth 401k and your employer is willing to give you a $0.10 cent on the dollar match or above, it is the easiest return of investment you will ever get. Take advantage of it. And, that, I mean, I think those types of investment plans make a lot of sense. So don't think I'm saying if you're 21 and get your first job and you have a decent 401k not to participate in it until you have $10,000. That's not what I mean at all. That's a different investment vehicle. We're talking about managing your own wealth here. Hopefully that is, you know, a little bit more clear than mud. All right, with that, I hope you enjoyed today's show. And I want to remind you one of the ways that you can support us is by doing your online shopping through tspaz.com where I post all of my reviews. Today I have a product for review for you that uh, there's a video in it that's so old. And when I open up the product and show you what's inside it, there's an iPod Pod, P-O-D, iPod inside it. It is the Camelback Mule. And why do I bring up how old the video is? Because I still have the Camelback Mule that's in the video. I bought that pack right about the same time I started Survival Podcast, which will mean sometime this summer it will be 10 years old, the, the, the Camelback itself. I think the video is about 9 years old. I did a video after having the, the pack for about a year. Um there's not a lot of stuff that you use heavily that lasts 10 years anymore. Camelback makes great gear. Now, what is the Mule? The Mule is a hydration pack. It's basically a small day pack type pack. It does carry a reasonable amount of cargo, but it holds three liters of water. And the primary thing I do with mine is in the summertime here when it's really hot and I'm out working, I wear that while I'm working and I drink while I work. And I'm going to tell you that my personal opinion over the years, is that Camelback has probably saved more lives than they will ever know. I, I'm, I'm tell you, people die every year of heat injuries. They end up in emergency rooms because of heat injuries. They end up with their life affected for the rest of their life from heat injuries. People don't seem to understand this, but if you have heat exhaustion once, 
you are far more likely to have it again. And if you have heat stroke again, you're more likely to have that. And heat stroke is where we start risking our lives. I spent two and a half years in Panama and Honduras. And you might imagine it's kind of a hot environment. And I saw more heat casualties than any other form of injury or casualty that anybody had. And it was always due to insufficient hydration. And there's people like, you can drink too much water, and that's just as bad. And there's people who drink so much. Yeah, you can, but you're probably not going to unless you're really stupid about it. You're going to have to try to do it to do that. Every instance of overhydration I've ever heard of, when you look at what was done, you're like, well, that was stupid. So if you are drinking as you sweat, you are not going to overhydrate. And you are not going to become a heat casualty. You're not going to pass out. You're not going to have a friggin' heat stroke and die. So I really recommend that you use some sort of a hydration system when you're working in the heat or taking long hikes, especially in hotter weather, etc. Especially in desert climates where it's not as humid, so you don't know you're sweating because it evaporates. So you don't, oh, it's not that bad. Out you go. I've seen that too. So if you're going to do that, You can go out to like Academy Sports and Outdoors or some sporting store or some box store, and you can get a cheap hydration backpack type thing for 20 bucks. And you'll get rid of it when it breaks, because it will. The straps will break, they'll fray, the bladder will pop, whatever. When I bought this thing, it was, I think it was over a hundred bucks when I bought it almost 10 years ago now. And Dorothy's like, that's so expensive. But she's like, that's kind of cool. So she went to like Walmart and bought a knockoff. And uh, like in in a month, she we're walking through the woods. She's like, ah, I her her whole back is soaked because <laughs> the bladder popped and it all leaked out. So she went and got another one. And uh, she was hiking around. And she's always like, are you are your back all sweaty? I'm like, no, my back's fine because it's got these like foam lifters that hold it off your back and it lets your back breathe and all like my back's all sweat. And then like it failed again. It didn't pop on her this time, but the the mouthpiece thing wasn't working and it was all frayed again. And she's like, "Well, I'll have to get it." I'm like, "I had enough. I went and got her a red Camelback mule. She still has hers too." Remember, I recommend the gear that is the smart investment. So yeah, it's 100 bucks, but over 10 years it's $10 a year to stay hydrated. See, that's how we talk about winning with money. That's how you have to look at things, the lifetime expense of something. So you buy something for 20 bucks and it lasts two months, you pay $10 a month for it. You buy for something for $100 that lasts 10 years, you pay $10 a year for it. Which one was least, less expensive? And I don't know how long the damn thing's going to last, but I don't know what the hell would go wrong with it. And if the bladder went bad finally, I could just get a new bladder and put it in the pack that's still, it's faded from the sun, but it still looks as good as the day I bought it. Camelback Mule, folks, and tspaz.com. All right, that brings us to our song of the day. Our song of the day is Humanity by the Scorpions. It's kind of a very apocalyptic song. It would fit in you know, the survival podcast meme, I guess. Um, and it, it has a lot of, in the video, there's a lot of images of suffering and war and things like World War II and the uh, 9-11 disaster and, and things like that. And it kind of foretells a very dark future of the end of mankind. Sort of. And that's how everybody takes this song. But I don't think people actually get this song right. I think what this song is trying to say is what died in us is our humanity. That all of these things... So this is not foretelling the death of mankind. This is explaining the current... Instead of saying this is where we're headed, this is saying this is where we are. 
all these horrible things that we do to each other is because we don't see the humanity in each other. That's what's died is the, the seeing of humanity. The seething hatred, it just in this country between the left and the right. We're not even talking about people in another country that we don't know, that we have some stereotype about this wrong. We're not talking about somebody that you can just look at and see across the street from you that lives a life that looks just like yours. And we hate each other. We don't see the humanity in each other anymore. And that there's, there's some lines in this song that really kind of drive that point home, basically saying, you, you, you can't have thought you were going to get away with this. That line is, you, uh, you're, uh, I'm sorry, you've signed and sealed it, and now you've got to deal with it. This is happening to you, and the reason it's happening to you is because it's how you've treated other people. You're a drop in the rain, just a number, not a name. And you don't see it, you don't believe it. At the end of the day, you're a needle in the hay. Needle in a haystack, hard to see. You're just a name, you're just a number. But it's because we've treated each other that way. And we don't have to. See, humanity is a concept. It's an idea. It's an ideal. It's not mortal. It's not something that can actually die. It can appear to die, but it can always be resurrected. It's like liberty, a famous line in Star, Star Wars, right? This is how liberty dies. This is how liberty dies. To tremendous applause or something to that effect, right? But liberty doesn't really die. That's the entire message of the rebellion in the Star Wars universe. It appears to die. But since it's an ideal, it can always be resurrected. Well, humanity... Seeing the, the pure value in another being just because they're a human and alive, it's an ideal. And while we've made it to where everybody's just a number, not a name, just a needle in the hay, while we've made it to where people are just a drop in the storm that is the rain, it doesn't have to be that way. That's what I think the actual message in this song is. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.